How can we honour you rightly? Honour that's due uh, to your name. Honour that's right for your name. Lord God, we ask that in the hearing of your word you'd give us understanding in our minds, desire in our hearts, and obedience for the days ahead. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've been with us in the evening service over the last few weeks, uh, over the summer, we've been with some fairly dodgy uh, kings of Israel. Um, But we've brought that to an end, and uh, now we're moving to the book of Acts. Why? Well, because it is our 150th anniversary. And uh, the uh, banner that you see above me is a commemoration. We had lots of, lots of us uh, draw little squares and we stuck it uh, all together and you can have a look at it uh, afterwards. And since it was a, a big anniversary for the church, there are two ways in which I wanted to think about where is it that we come from as a, uh, as a church of God. The first one we thought about was in Genesis and the story of Abraham, because that's the first calling of God's people. If you like, it's the birthday of the church. We don't have babies, uh, well, I suppose some people do, you don't have babies just in order to keep having babies. You have a baby in order that they might grow up and take their full part in uh, life uh, in the community. So if you like, the second part of that is the coming of age birthday of the church. And that's why we're going to be in Acts for a while. Genesis, the the first birthday, and if you like, Acts, the coming of age of the church. So would you please turn to Acts and chapter 2, page uh, uh, 1094. Just a little bit of background about uh, the book of the Acts. You know the uh, gospel of Luke. Uh, Luke tells us there that he's setting out to write an orderly account of all that Jesus got up to. And he's beginning it with his gospel, and then at the beginning of the Acts, he says, and now I'm carrying uh, it on for you. And he's writing to this uh, chap, Theophilus. And as he comes to the book of the Acts, the account is centred, it begins in Jerusalem, the ancient heart of God's ancient people. And part of what Luke is going to be doing for Theophilus is trying to explain what relationship there is between, if you like, between Abraham and the Acts, between what Jesus was up to in the very first days of God's people, and yes, I've no problem saying what Jesus was up to way back then, because Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, uh, and now what Jesus is up to in uh, Theophilus's own day. So that's the kind of uh, background, and this is a classic text for what the church was up to Uh, in its first days. And there are three ways in which what we're looking at is a new people. First of them I want to suggest is this, that now we have a new people in whom the tablets have given way to the teaching. If you like, the old has gone. This follows the day of Pentecost. And on the original, well, in the Jewish festival of Pentecost, it was the festival of keeping the law of God. Uh, they associate it with, with uh, various ancient feasts and they regard it as this is the day when we look at what God has told us to do. So it's not insignificant that when we come to chapter 2 and to these verses, 
this is kind of moving from the giving of the law under Moses to this sense of the teaching that we get now with the apostles. What's happened in the first 41 verses of this? It's not so long since we had these verses at, uh, on the day of Pentecost itself, which is why we're not doing them now. But the thing I want you to kind of really focus on is verse 37, I suppose, onwards. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What they are being confronted with in their day is this demand for a new kind of faith, a recognition that the Lord God whom you've known in the old days has now made himself known to you as Jesus Christ, and God has raised Jesus to be Lord. And if he is Lord, then all you can do, since he's resurrected and he's going to be Lord for a very long time, is fall down before him and repent of sin. Those are the the two fundamentals. Jesus Christ is raised as Lord. Before him, repent and express it in baptism. So even though you may have known these verses uh, that we had read out from verse 42 through to 47, you may have known that they're a kind of classic description of the church. You may have said to yourself sometime when you read these verses by yourself, cool, it'd be a cracking church to belong to. We can't just jump into them straight away. We've got to recognize that the way you get into this church, this church for those verses, is by recognizing that Jesus is Lord and the appropriate response to him is repentance and faith. And what is it then that the apostles, we're told, were teaching? Verse 42, they devoted themselves. It's a big word, that, by the way, devoted. It's, a, it's, a, it's one of those times when, uh, in the original language, they're, 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 uh, Luke is piling up the, the little, wor- little bits of words ahead of it, kind of meaning they really, really, really gave themselves to. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What were the apostles' teaching? Well, what we've just read. Jesus is Lord. That's the fundamental. It was the creed of the early church. Jesus is Lord. Before him, repent and be baptized. But there's something to be said, or something to be noticed, about the fact that that's the first thing that is mentioned. The apostles' teaching. Even a little later, when... uh, we're we're told that wonders and miracles are happening. They're not happening from everyone. They're not happening across this 3,000 people that we heard about at the end of uh, the first part of the the chapter, verse 41. They're happening by the apostles. Why are they happening by the apostles? Because God, by his Holy Spirit, wants to authenticate the message that the apostles are teaching. It really is hammering it home. Jesus Christ is Lord before him, Repent and be baptized. And the first thing, therefore, to grasp hold of as the sign of this new, renewed people is that what was the coming down from the mountain with the tablets? That, that has been dis, uh, dislodged in favor of this teaching. The, a church that is following Jesus Christ as Lord with a repentant and humble spirit will be marked by apostolic teaching. And now, of course, we have it bound for us in the pages of this book. 
That's where we go for the apostles' authoritative, authentic teaching. It's one of the marks of the Christian church, if it's getting its job right. So let me just just tell you a small story I heard this week about a church that's getting its job wrong. It's our church, uh, Church of England. Um, I say ours, I recognize not all of us are actually Anglicans, but it's it's easy to point fingers at others, and it's important sometimes to recognize ourselves with humility. I was uh, talking with a a friend who works in one of the uh, colleges, the sort of vicar factories, which um, the Church of England runs, the theological colleges. There's lots of them, uh, but there's there's about, reckon to be about six, that are kind of just committed utterly to biblical teaching, and he teaches at one of those. And I said to him, you know, a little while ago, there was this, um, uh, it was the case that there were far more coming through those colleges than are coming through the other colleges. Is that still the case? He said, yes. And I said, so why are we not seeing change? And he said, well, because evangelicals, Bible-believing people, tend to despise teaching. What's happening is that they're coming through the colleges and going off into ministry, but they're not staying around to be developed and think through what faith is about. Those who are hanging around are those maybe who are more attracted to an academic life, but who have a kind of rigor about them. Now, this is the beginning of student term, so I'm happy to leave some of you with a challenge, because some of you at some point will end up in relatively formal, structured theological teaching. I want to say, go as far as you can. Use your minds, because the use of the mind in following the apostolic teaching is one of the marks of a Christian church when it's getting it right. And God forgive us if those of us who are Bible-believing people are not pushing the use of the mind as once we used to do. We've gone all fluffy and fuzzy. It's not the only thing that needs saying. We'll come on to some other things in a minute. But let's recognize what's going on here, the use of the mind. So this is a new people in which the tablets have given way to teaching. Then secondly, this is a new people in which the old community ways have given way to a new kind of love. Well, you know the the social rules of ancient Israel. It says over here. Honour thy father and thy mother, thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbour, and thou shalt not covet thy neighbour's ass and, uh, and house and quite a few other things. And there are other bits that say in more depth what it means. But you could go on about those for a very long time before you would come up with the quality of community life that we're seeing displayed here in this text. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. I guess those are put together in a pair, because what are they doing with the apostles? They're following their teaching. What about everyone else? They're devoting themselves to everyone else. This, it's a very strong word again, the fellowship, the, the, the rubbing along with one another. To the breaking of bread and to prayer. 
the breaking of bread at the moment. I, I guess that's what they were already beginning to call this thing. And prayer. Uh, then later on, verse 44. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods. They gave to anyone as he had need. They didn't sell everything uh, because later on they're going to meet in homes. Well, you can't meet in a home if you've sold it. So they weren't selling everything, but they were certainly selling some things. And some of them were selling homes. But they had everything uh, pretty much in common. And it's worth saying, I think, that uh, we jump very quickly, rightly, to saying, well, this isn't kind of, you know, early communism or anything. But we can say a couple of things. If this church was doing what it said, what this says, then when they mixed with other Jewish people, they would have been regarded as Jews on the way to becoming unclean. Because they were were doing some things that the law didn't fuss itself about, and they weren't doing some of the things that the law did fuss about. So they were themselves on the way to being unclean, which means that people would no longer have traded with them. They would no longer have had fellowship with them, their, their older friends. Now, that means that there was economic need in that community. It wasn't just they started off poor, though they probably did, many of them. It was actually that poverty would have been increasing. So, actually, it became necessary for the Christian church to look after its own. They met in homes. Most churches these days, the Bible-believing ones, will have some kind of meeting in homes. But I remember one experience of kind of catching a sense of what this is like. Um, uh, a while ago, uh, I went to uh, Rome and to an extraordinary church there called San Clemente. And it's your average 11th century church above ground. Um, you know, if we had an 11th century church, we think it was quite special. They don't. Um, it's your average 11th century church above ground. But it was built on top of a 4th century church underneath. And you can go down into the 4th century church. It's pretty extraordinary. It's, it's, a, it's a house that has been converted into a church. And what we know about it is when it was used as a church. But I don't know how you, if, whether you know this about ancient cities, because there's kind of nowhere really to put your rubbish. You haven't got kind of um, uh, trucks taking it a long way away. All the rubbish just accumulates. So you've got layers of things. The main thing about St. Clemente is you can go down another level. And you can go down to that house of Clemens, which is why it's called St. Clemente, who was a consul and an early Christian martyr. And under the 4th century, there's a 1st century level. And it is extraordinary. It's, it's quite dark, very, very narrow, dark Roman bricks. And the, the streets between the houses, the, well, okay, streets, they're... they're They're alleyways. They're not just partitions. They're really alleyways. And they're about that wide. Um, And that's kind of all you you get, really, by way of a street till you come to something a a tad wider. But down there, and reckoning on this principle that you always follow, that a, a church was built on another church, was built on another church, was built on another church, they've identified not only an ancient temple of the god Mithras, but also a house that has a room in it that's far bigger than anyone had any business building. The only rationale for that room being there is because it's where the Christians first met. You can stand in the room and think, this is where this verse happened. 
Well, not in Jerusalem, but in Rome. And you can get about 20 people in the room. Now, this is in a time when, you know, you'd get, be lucky to get six people in the average room of one of those houses. But they met in homes, 20 or so of them. And you can catch that atmosphere of how dangerous it was to be known meeting as Christians when there was a Jewish temple up the way and there was a temple of, of Mithras from some Romans next door to you. They met in homes. And the quality of their fellowship was the quality of fellowship you get when we meet in homes. So do it. Then thirdly, if that was about the way that their community was showing a new quality of love, then thirdly, this is a new people in whom worship as sacrifice performed gives way to worship as sacrifice that is passed. They didn't have to do the the bulls and the calves and the goats and all the rest of it anymore. So we're not doing that, you'll be glad to know tonight. Some of you are coming from a non-Anglican background and perhaps wondering what do they do in Anglican churches. It's okay, it's only bread and wine. One of the things that distinguished this community, verse 43, everybody was, everyone was filled with awe. Now, what kind of, what kind of awe? You know the old John, John Wayne joke? Um, they're filming one of those great biblical epics, and, and John Wayne's playing the centurion. He's watching the cross, and um, he says, truly this man was the son of God. And someone said, say it with awe, John. He said, ah, this truly, this man was the son of God. Um, What kind of awe is he he talking about in verse 43? Well, the closest we can get is not, we don't have to jump to some sense that this is a vague, nebulous, mystical, uh, spooky feeling. On the contrary, this is part of the same quality that, that leads them to have been cut to the heart in verse 37. This is the impact of Jesus as Lord proclaimed in the midst of a group of people who didn't know it until it was proclaimed, and they're watching a different quality of life coming into being. And it's not surprising, it strikes them with awe. It's not mystical, it's not fuzzy, it's not spooky. It's simply the recognition that God is actually at work. Not a part of the ancient history, not a part of the history books, but actually at work. And it's going to get more intense. Next week we'll come to fear itself. And the the awe is such as to lead to that repentance as Jesus is proclaimed as Lord. That's the the quality of the lives that are kind of on display here. And what is it they do in their worship? Well, according to the verse before, the breaking of bread and to prayer. They continued to meet together. This is now verse 46. In the temple courts. It would look as though what actually happened was they didn't just stand away from the Jewish community that they'd been part of. As far as they could, they carried on with the prayers because there was nothing in the prayers that contradicted Jesus being Lord. So they stayed as long as they could with the old community. In fact, it would 
cast them out a little late, later. But they gave themselves to that business, and they, they met together. They intensified, in fact, their commitment to that old model, presumably because they wanted to say, look, look what has come to pass within the context of this praying. So they gave themselves to that, but it was the prayers they gave themselves to. There was no sense of having to repeat ancient sacrifices. They don't have to do that because now they've come to the breaking of bread. They're following out Jesus' command. We don't know in what form that was at this point, but it looks like there's a very ancient tradition of of Jesus actually doing it. St. Paul refers to it in the first letter to the church in Corinth. And then in verse 47, they praise God. This is a new quality of worship that's coming in with this people. It's a new people in which the tablets of the law have given way to teaching. It's a new people in which the community life has given way to real love. It's a new people in which worship that used to be performed as sacrifice is now sacrifice that's passed and remembered in bread and wine. What's the result of it? Lastly, verse 47 and the last part of it. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. It's very embarrassing that he did that. Because um, uh, there's no mention uh, that there was lots of preaching going on. Uh, There's no uh, preaching, in other words, at the outsiders. This is the people that gave themselves to the apostles' teaching. By definition, internally, this is the people. No mention at this point of preaching going on outside. There's wonders and miracles being performed, but the context is within this group of people. Not the kind of thing that will impress the outsiders. Now, we know from other records that there was preaching, that there were wonders being done. But why would Luke, writing this, omit all of that and say, they did this, they did this, they did this, the Christian community did this, the new Christian community did this, the new community of Christ did this, and the Lord added to their number all that were being saved. There was no, there's no planning recorded where this group of people say, hmm, this is a problem. Um, we, we're pulling apart from the, the, the Jewish group and from others around us. Let's build ourselves bridges so we can communicate and so we can help them over. It would seem that what made the difference so that the Lord added here, right here, not talking in other places, but right here, so that the Lord added to their number those who were being saved, is it was simply the quality of their lives together. Now, that's the point at which I get very scared. We've already announced, you know, we're doing Christianity Explored. I'll be part of it. I look forward to it. I love all that. There are conversations that you'll tell me about probably after our service together in which you're engaging with those who don't yet believe. Great. But isn't it scary that Luke focuses entirely, before he gets to the Lord adding to their number, on the quality of life that they had together. 
what did they do? They ate, this is amongst other things, they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. That word glad, the only other time it comes in the work that Luke produces is that time we heard about in the Gospel. When Elizabeth, who is pregnant, is, uh, greets the arrival of Mary, who is pregnant. And Elizabeth says, when you uh, arrived and greeted me, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And that joy is the word glad that we have here. That's the intensity of their gladness. I sometimes envy those churches in hotter parts of the world where you don't need walls. Where, you, where, in fact, it would be mad to have walls, where you just leave the sides open. You have a roof against the rain, if you have the sides open, so everyone can see what the Christians do together. What can we do as a Christian community to say this is the quality of our life together? The answer is, I have absolutely no idea. But it would seem to be that it's a rather important question. I mean, it's probably not a right answer. A small small thing. In a church I know, one Christian shared a resource with another Christian. The second Christian's colleague at work heard about it and was jealous. Because that sounds like a good thing. Small point. But there was an instinct for sharing of resources, even today, that was impressive to someone who was an outsider. That story, I'm sure, replicates and replicates in ways that we scarcely know about. But all I want to do as we finish is just leave you with that vivas, because it's not for you and somehow not for me, but leave us with that challenge. What do we do so to live together that the Lord adds daily those who are being saved? Because we astonish the world around us with our praise of God, with our commitment to one another and by the quality of our following apostolic teaching. If you're here tonight and you want to be part of the kind of church that's in verses 42 to 47, let me tell you, you can't do it unless you repent and believe. If you haven't got to that point, do something about it. If you have repented and believed... Have you really appreciated the people with whom God has surrounded you? And the, the promise, according to Peter on the day of Pentecost, is to you and your children and to those who are far off. And God has put you and your children and those far off in this community that we call the church. If you've repented and believed, then there are things to look for in a church. And some of you will be looking around, quite rightly, at the beginning of student life. Teaching love and the praise of God come through in this reading. There will be others that come through in the weeks ahead. But teaching love and praise isn't a bad threesome to be going on with tonight. Let's pray. Lord, it's sometimes good to be driven by your Holy Spirit 
into those places where we say we just don't know. And we don't know. Don't suppose many of us have experienced that quality of Christian life in community that is so... uh, that, that leaves the world gobsmacked and and makes it so much more understandable that you are adding to those who are being saved. We don't know. We can hear of teaching, we can hear of love, we can hear of praise, and those are great things. And yet it's the desire of our hearts that you would turn us into the kinds of people who are so in awe of the Lord Jesus Christ, risen, ascended, reigning, that we live lives of repentance and faith before you and live lives of love and fellowship and obedience within the life of your people. We give you the desire of our hearts this evening and we ask that you would make it real in our lives. Amen.